Well, Keystone Church, good morning. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors on staff, and uh, to begin this morning, I want to say both uh, Merry Christmas, uh, Happy New Year, uh, and thank you. Um, it's good to be long to Keystone Church, and for those of you who have um, mourned with me <clears throat> at the loss of my grandfather, Vernie, or rejoiced with me at the birth of our son, or just extended your care and compassion and love, I, I want to begin by thanking you for the cards and the meals Bethany and I have felt uh, and tasted your affection for us. And so thank you. I'm grateful to be here this morning and a part of Keystone's body. Um, with two kids now, uh, I'm grateful to have our kids who are now two and a half and, uh, what is it, uh, 18 days old, to grow up at Keystone Church. In other words, I, I am happy that little Eloise is able to spend time in the two-year-old classroom with Steve and Missy or uh, Jamile and Natalie. Like, I'm, I'm happy to be able to have Theo be in good hands with Marcy or uh, any of those caregivers in the nursery. I'm grateful that Bethany calls Keystone home and has ladies who are able to text her words of encouragement or uh, to commiserate with her. I'm grateful that I'm able to, on a Sunday morning, walk through the halls and interact with people who would love to, to linger and chat over uh, just normal life stuff. I'm happy to belong to Keystone. And I've said something like this before that, like, I, I love Keystone's preaching. I'm not the primary preaching, teaching pastor. I love Keystone's preaching. I love Keystone's worship. But if that's the only thing that matters to us, like, we can find that other places. And what we can't find are Keystone's people. You and your vitality is, is made flesh at Keystone in a way that can't be made flesh anywhere else. And so I, I hope that you are grateful to be numbered among Keystone's people um, and yet also know that Keystone is not a perfect home and we're not a perfect family. No church is. We would say that we're a growing church. What we mean by that is we, we want to grow to be more and more like the people and the place that God has created us to be, so that our Sunday mornings formally uh, and our weeks informally reflect more and more of heaven now on earth, God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so we come back to the scriptures again and again and again to be shaped by God's word. Sunday after Sunday, day after day, we in some ways view the scriptures like a map and a mirror like a map and a mirror. It's a map in that as we read its words, we find ourselves oriented about where we are and where we ought to go. But maybe before we even look at it as a map, we look at it as a mirror. We, we take God's word and we allow it to stand in front of us and we ask the question, does my life reflect the nature of God's heart? Does my life and its actions 
reflect the nature and character of Jesus Christ. And when it doesn't, that's why we come back to it to guide us moving forward. We as a church want to be orthodox. What I mean by that is we want to be orthodox both in the, the words we proclaim and the works that we perform. We want to be orthodox in our gospel proclamation formally from this platform on Sunday mornings. We want to hold fast to God's word, both formally here and informally in our homes, so that we might be able to declare God's words true here and there. That makes sense. We also want to be orthodox in our lifestyles, in the way that we live our lives We want to be orthodox, meaning that the the works that we perform or the culture that we display when we're gathered together or scattered in our homes, we want those lives to reflect the nature and character of God. And wherever we see some kind of incongruity between both the words we proclaim and the lives we live, we want to repent, we want to reconcile, we want to restore. This morning's passage, uh, and for the next four weeks in January, we'll be looking at an area of keystone life that I believe we ought to walk in a kind of repentance in. And I I don't necessarily think that this is a kind of repentance that will cause us to believe anything different or think anything different. But I do think that if Jesus saw our lives, he might have a rebuke or an exhortation for us in the, the manner that we live out. In other words, it's not a kind of belief that we need to correct as much as an attitude or action that we need to bring in line with the truth of the gospel. I want to show you a verse on a screen, and I want us to read it together and consider it as a mirror for us. So if we look up on the screen, Luke 15, 1 to 2. Now the tax collectors... And the sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. I didn't expect for you to read it with me, but I love that. Yeah, this is God's word. We are together looking at this as a mirror for our lives. Now I'll read it again. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the scribes and the Pharisees grumbled, saying that he welcomes or receives sinners and eats with them. Is that what we see at Keystone? Is is that what we see? Do we see today's tax collectors and sinners drawing near to us, flooding our auditorium or flooding our homes during the week? When we gather for baptisms, are our baptismal waters stirred with the testimonies of men and women who, when they share their testimonies in front of our kids, cause them to blush? Have we received any critical or cautionary feedback over concern that Keystone's a place that welcomes sinners and eats with them? Maybe. uh, Maybe those stories do exist. I, I know of a few but we would say that they were all drawing near to us. And even if those stories do exist, it's still a problem if we don't hear those testimonies on a consistent basis. My fear or my worry would be, I wonder, do we have a church 
that the Pharisees and the scribes would be happy to attend? Would they give a nod and a fist pump of approval because they see how acceptable and how respectable we are as a church? Would they applaud our ministry or message? And if so, I I think there's something wrong. We want to be orthodox in the words we proclaim and the culture that we create. And Pastor Ray Ortland has a quote that has struck me. He says, faithfulness to the gospel requires more than doctrinal purity in our churches. It also requires relational beauty in our churches. But it is possible to sincerely preach true doctrine while at the same time utterly deny that doctrine by an ugly anti-gospel culture. Take a look at the screen. What's wrong with this picture? Is it up there? Not, there's nothing wrong with this picture. There's something wrong with that picture. Unless you're looking at it solely through the lens of doctrinal purity. Jesus saves. If you saw that on the website, you might think, yeah, we should visit that church. They seem to be a gospel-believing church. And yet I'm hoping that the second you walk into that church, you recognize this is not where I want to be. The doctrine is not in congruity with the culture of this church. At Keystone, the doctrine on our wall says that you are welcomed by God, by grace alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the doctrine that we proclaim boldly on a Sunday morning. And I wonder, does the culture of Keystone end up reflecting the doctrine? Or is there some sort of anti-gospel culture message that ends up unsaying what we do say formally? Because if we're too afraid to confess our sin to one another, it may be that our lives preach a message different than the one that we proclaim. If we're not seeing tax collectors and sinners streaming into our homes or church, it may be that our church culture has a subliminal message that says it's not really okay to not be okay here. If we hear impatient grumbling or stingy compassion for lost people, it may be that we've forgotten how God has welcomed us. And so in the last days, the last hours of 2023 and for the first month of 2024, we as a church uh, want to spend some time looking at and working out what does it mean that God has welcomed us as sinners. And so would you pray with me? Father, we, we worship you because we believe that you are the one true and living God. You are our heavenly Father, holy in all that you do, glorious in all that we see, Father, we want to reflect your heart in all of its multifaceted majesty. We want the world to see our lives and be drawn up into a God who is bigger and better than our imagination can grasp. So, Father, I pray that this morning you would help me, this month that you would help us as a church to 
be exposed to your Holy Spirit's prompting to comfort where we need comforted, to correct where we need to be corrected so that we would be able to, like you, welcome and celebrate the peoples and stories of repentance. I pray this morning that you'd guard us from a kind of familiarity that would dull our senses uh, and keep us from seeing all it is that you want us to see. So, Lord Spirit, help us see, help us hear, help us then to put flesh on the words and live them out for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look at Luke 15. We're, we're not going to do the full chapter, but we'll start here. Now I'll read the words again. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. It's Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. And we're going to jump over the two parables that Jesus tells to hit the third one. But to speed read through, the first is of a lost sheep. There's a man who has 100 sheep. He leaves the 99 to go and find the lost sheep. And when he brings him back safe and sound, he celebrates and rejoices. The second is a parable of a woman with 10 coins. She loses one and she searches for that lost and valuable coin. And when she finds it, brings it safely home, she celebrates and rejoices. Uh, The third, as we'll see, is the parable of the infamous prodigal son. And I'm hoping after this morning you see this is a story of two sons. But when the prodigal returns to his father, the father celebrates. The grumbling of the Pharisees is the catalyst for Jesus to launch into these three parables that each display a kind of celebration over what has been lost. And I think our big idea comes out of this basic concept that I'm hoping you see works itself out in the parable, that our God cultivates and celebrates repentance. Our God rejoices in receiving back what was lost. And in doing so, reveals the heart of God who cultivates and celebrates repentance. Now, before we read that text, I I mentioned it in the prayer. There is a risk whenever we read a familiar passage, especially for those of us who are more experienced with our scriptures, is to say something to the effect of, well, I know this story, and then to tune out. To just sort of put it in neutral and coast through the text because we've seen this before, we've heard this before. I know all that God has for me in this text, and I set forth a warning, don't, don't put it in neutral, don't coast. I'm going to try to do my best to reveal some of the shock of Jesus' words, but I'm trusting more in his Holy Spirit that he's helping you to, to see and to hear what would be helpful for us as a church to reflect more of his character. Uh, for kids in the auditorium, this story would make a great, it's not so much a comic strip as much as it is maybe a graphic novel which each scene having its particular frame. Uh, and if, whether you're a kid or a kid at heart, you draw this, I'd love to see it after the message. But let's pick up in verse 11 and we'll read through the end of the chapter. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he, the father, divided his property between them, his two sons. Not many days later, 
the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But, but the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost but he is found. And they began to celebrate. Verse 25. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older son, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your commands Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And the father said to his son, Son, my child, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I want to look at three shocking vignettes in three different sections of this story. The, the first is to see the shock in verses 11 through 16 
of both the younger son's rejection and the father's release. It should be shocking to us that the younger son, younger son would reject or refuse or turn away from his father. Now we're familiar with the passage, but consider what the younger son is actually asking. He's saying, Father, I want my inheritance now. I wish that you were dead so that I could get what is mine now. And we can only imagine what Jesus' brief words squandered in reckless living might look like. And so I I, I want us to not lose the shock, maybe like a Jeremiah 2.11, that we might be shocked and utterly appalled at the actions, the disrespect, the dishonor of the younger brother. We might be shocked and utterly appalled at the suicidal insanity of the son to forsake his father, the fountain of living waters, and settle for slurping at muddy puddles. With very few details, we can see, and I hope be shocked by the folly, the foolishness of the younger brother. But that's what sin is. That's how we define sin. It's disrespect, it's debauchery, and it leads to destruction. So maybe you're not as shocked by the younger son. That's what younger sons do. But maybe you might be shocked at the father's response to release him. Jewish tradition would have allowed this father to take his rebellious and stubborn son outside of the city for being a glutton and a drunkard and stone him to death for his disobedience. But this father doesn't shackle or stone his son, he gives him up. He lets him go. He lets him race headlong into the destruction that the father knows is in his future. And it's a heartbreaking scene that I know that there are parents here who can identify with. The the father is losing wealth, and that's heartbreaking to a degree. And the father is opening himself up to a certain kind of shame in in the community as he no longer has his wealth, But no doubt, people would think, what kind of father would let his son go like that? What kind of father would raise a son who would do such a thing? But the the pain, I think parents understand, is that the the pain of this portion is that the father is losing his son. And as painful as as it is, the, the father loved his son more than his stuff. And he knew that restraining his presence would not preserve the relationship that he desired with his son. The son was in some ways lost before he was ever leaving. And it was a gamble the father hoped would produce a kind of genuine love and genuine respect from his son that would bring more joy than any kind of proximity that he might have to his son. He knew that letting him go and having him hope to come back would produce a kind of joy that begrudging submission at home could not. And so he willingly absorbed the shame. But I believe Jesus uses this scene to paint the picture of the younger brother to reveal a particular form of lostness that might be more of the traditional understanding of lostness. It's self-centered disobedience. It's self-serving immorality. It's self-destructive hedonism. Sin is being bad. It's doing bad things and then 
having bad things come as a consequence. Sin in some ways for this younger son is a hook baited with his delight. And Satan is good at revealing or showing the bait and hiding the hook. This is a vignette that shows how veering from the ancient path steers us towards bondage and destruction. And though not the main point of this story, Jesus is providing a warning to all of us who in the name of freedom or self-expression might be tempted by the desires of our heart to chart a new course against the tides of tradition. And so the, the parable continues in a similar way to how the previous two have to lead us to the shock of scene two in verses 17 through 24, the shock of the son's repentance and the father's reception. I'm hoping that there is some kind of shock that the younger brother does repent and return home. And it comes at the moment when the transition from being the rock star to, to being at rock bottom hits its conclusion. He comes to his senses. This is a change of mind. What we think about when we think about repenting. And after exhausting all of his options to kind of earn his way back into good standing, pull himself up by his own bootstraps, as it were. And after he's run out of resources and desperate because none of his friends will even help him, he has nowhere to turn. And in a moment of sobriety and clarity, he considers, maybe I can go home. And there would have been a whole slew of fears that might have been swirling around his head because in pride, it might actually be comfortable, more comfortable to stay with the pigs than it would be to return to a father who's going to shame him for his behavior. And where pride would cause some to stay miserable, he humbles himself. He decides to take that walk of shame back to the wreckage that was in his wake at home. With a penitent plan, this younger son walks home, and I think that's shocking. Praise God for that. What is also shocking is that the father is ready to welcome him and celebrate his return. Everything under the law would have given the son reason to think that the father was going to punish him upon returning. And the father would beat his son, make him pay back everything that he had taken. And it's worth lingering on Jesus' words here. Verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Verse 22 and 23 gives him the best robe, the ring, the shoes, the fattened calf and celebrates. His father has been glassing the horizon for I don't know how long, hoping one day to see his son coming towards him. And when that day comes, the father is ready. He's been attentive and now he's eager to run and embrace that son rather than folding his arms and tapping his foot. The father shows compassion, not scorn. The father refuses to treat his son like a servant or a slave and embraces him as a son. The father dances and celebrates. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. And I believe that kind of welcome would have melted the fears and melted the heart of the younger son. And I believe Jesus tells us this story because he wants to paint a picture of God's love for repentance. It's a kind of eager compassion. It's a kind of extravagant generosity. Kind of ecstatic welcome. 
in some ways to mirror the joy and jubilee that the man who finds his sheep or the woman who finds his coin rejoices in having back what he had or she had lost. Is that how you picture your heavenly father? Now you know the doctrine God welcomes sinners, but is that how you feel when you find yourself in the pigsty? Feeling guilty, feeling ashamed? Or do we feel like we need to tiptoe our back into God's good graces? Jesus wants us to see the heart of the Father towards the lost. Jesus wants us then to celebrate when those who are lost repent and come home. So this little section, Jesus is correcting both the the Pharisee and the, the scribes who are grumbling, but he's also correcting those who are sinners drawing near to let them know that our God is a God who cultivates and celebrates repentance. And if this parable was like the other two, that's how the story would end. It would end with the celebration of the father receiving back the son. But like I said at the beginning, this is a parable about two lost sons. Two, the, the father had two sons. And so Jesus continues with the shock in verses 25 through 32 of the older son's refusal and the father's response to him. It should be shocking to us that the older son rejects his father in a way that looks a whole lot like the rejection of the younger son. He's the good son though, right? He always obeyed his father. But just like the younger son, the the older son refuses to be counted among his father's family, to enter into his presence. In anger and grumbling like the Pharisees and the scribes, the older son complains that his father has welcomed back and eaten with his sinner brother. And in doing so, he's revealing his true colors from his dark heart that he shares. The only reason that he was a good kid The only reason that he obeyed his father because he wanted his father's goat more than his father's love. His faithful service as the elder, righteous brother was rooted in what he thought that he could earn. And his now contempt for his brother's sin and his father's grace reveals that he did all that he did because of what he thought he deserved. So he refuses to be associated with his father and I think reveals that just as the older, the younger son was lost, he's lost as well, alienated from his father. So rather than rejoicing with his father and his brother, he puffs up his chest, he sticks up his nose and he expresses his disgust towards his brother and his father. Shocking. The father and his response is shocking too because the father comes out to him. He walks out of his feast and enters into the conversation with another son who has dishonored him. And with kindness, he pleads with him, my son, my child, like everything that you have is yours. It's as if the father's arms are wide to lead him back in the feast. Everything we have is yours. Come on in. And I believe Jesus describes this 
older son is a picture of another form of lostness. Self-centered obedience. Self-serving morality. Self-destructive legalism. On the surface, these two sons can look completely different. One good, one bad. One who is acceptable and respectable. The other who is shameful and obscene. But underneath the surface, Jesus is exposing that the same sinful heart and lostness can be found in both one who obeys and one who disobeys. And God intends to shock everyone who's listening by showing that those who seek to live good lives may be just as alienated as those who don't. Jesus wants to show grace. Grace is the only grounds for sonship. And so repentance is not simply turning away from bad behaviors, but it's turning away from the bad motivations for even the best of behaviors. And it's that kind of repentance that God is cultivating as he allows Jesus to come out of his feast to speak with the Pharisees and scribes. The parable ends without us knowing exactly what happens. There's not a fourth scene that might have the older son repenting and returning to join the feast with his father and his brother. We don't know if he's reconciled in the story. What we do know is what happened in real life, right? We, we do know what the Pharisees and the scribes did in response to Jesus coming out. It was fitting for us to celebrate. What was lost has been found. What was dead is now alive. We know that when they heard Jesus welcomed sinners, the older son then stripped him of his robe beat Jesus, gave him a crown of thorns, and nailed him to a cross. What I want to consider this morning and for the next five weeks, how will we respond to Jesus' teaching about the way God receives sinners? So to conclude, let's look at three ways that if we want to, as a church, reflect God's heart, what must we do? One, we as a church need to repent of our younger and older brother sinfulness. If we want Keystone Church and our lives to reflect God's heart, we as the church ought to continually repent of our proclivities and tendencies to display characteristics of younger brother lostness and older brother lostness. So if you find in your heart any desire to reject God's word and run to the world to find joy, you need to come to your senses now. If you're on your way out the door or you're currently wallowing in the filth, Jesus is issuing a call. Come home. The world's pleasures are a mirage that will lead to your destruction. Jesus says, come home Your heart was made to be at home. But if you find in your heart an urge to hold up your own righteousness in order to scorn others or grumble against God, you need to come to your senses as well. 
Jesus is calling you to repent of your hollow self-righteousness and to enjoy and extend the kind of grace that he offers you. If we find in our own hearts a kind of boasting or loathing online, we need to repent of that. If we find ourselves angry with God for not rewarding our good behavior, we need to repent. Both kinds of lost sons need to respond to the loving invitation and initiation of our Heavenly Father who's continually calling us to turn from our own attempts to be Lord and Savior. Our Heavenly Father is a father. He's not a slave that we can boss around. He's not a slave master that we need to serve or be subjected to in that way. He's a father that we need to love and he's inviting us to come home. Our churches and our home should be a reflection of that kind of homecoming, which leads me to the second thing. If we want Keystone Church and our lives to reflect God's heart, we need to cultivate a home where sinners want to run in repentance. There was something that was lodged in the mind of the younger brother that gave him reason to think that if he did return, it'd be okay. And it took faith for him to make the risk of returning to the father that he has scorned and shamed. But it took the father's grace to keep him there. The father welcomed the younger son before the stench of sin was washed away. He put the robe on his shoulders and ring on his finger before his theology was perfect. And when the son was content to be treated as a servant, the father reminded him that his status is one of a son the moment he repents. If we could get just a few of those kinds of stories at Keystone, we might be able to start to believe that God really does rejoice when we repent. If enough people could have the courage and the faith to believe that we are welcomed by grace alone, and then enough people at Keystone are able to extend that grace and celebrate recovery, we might find that there are other sinners who are willing to draw near to our ministry and message with the courage and faith to repent. That would be reason to celebrate both when younger brothers and when older brothers return to their father. The last point for this morning, if we want Keystone Church in our lives to reflect God's heart, we need to imitate the example of our better brother. Because this parable is not a one-to-one retelling of the gospel message. In the gospel, in our gospel, Our God does not idly wait for the lost son to return. Our Heavenly Father sends his son to seek and save his lost brother. It's another son who has always obeyed his father and deserved the robe and the ring, but this is the son who knows that the only way that his brother is going to be clothed is if he's stripped. The father sends the son, and the son knows that the only way that his brother can be restored to his family is if he takes the cross, if he wears the crown of thorns. And so even at great cost to himself, this is a better brother who's willing to descend into the pigsty to plead and pluck us from the muck and mire and then rejoice with us when we're brought home safe and sound. 
It's true. We cannot replicate the ministry of Jesus. We can imitate it. What I mean by that is we can't atone for sin, but we can lay down our lives to lead others to the ones who can. We can't cause someone to repent, but we can cultivate a home that will give somebody confidence that if they do return, they will be welcomed and rejoiced with open arms. We can create a church community, or we can build a home that can be a memory in the mind of our lost brothers and sisters and prodigal children that may remember and then trust that they'll be treated well if they return. I'm hoping the the rest of this series can work out for us what it will look like practically to welcome others in the same way that God has welcomed us. May God grant us the grace to do it because I believe we'll need it. We'll have to work out what the difference is between accepting and affirming sinners. We'll have to work out how, how will we be able to eat with sinners and not sin with sinners. We'll have to consider what are the bounds of hospitality, if there are any. We'll have to figure out how to prepare for the cost to sacrifice and love sinners. But what I can tell you is that I'm excited to be able to walk the next weeks with you to see what God will do in us and through us and how in a year from now, who might be gathering with us. So would you pray with me? Father, we believe that you are mighty to save and that the joy that you have over one sinner repenting is worth your singing over us and dancing. Lord, we want our heart to beat like yours. I pray, Lord, that this morning your spirit would be at work to continue to point out where we might need to be comforted as sinners that the Father's arms are open wide, where we might need to be corrected as older brothers who in our own pride and arrogance and condescension would look down upon and loathe those who have not sinned like us. Father, break us that we might be able to be built back up into the image of Christ, that we might cultivate a kind of community among those at Keystone that would send a message both in word and in relationship that we are a home, a home for people to come when they have repented of their sin and are looking for grace. May it be, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.